Welcome to Packet Pushers, probably still the greatest data networking podcast on the internet today, although there's a number of contenders and we have to keep upping the quality every single week. This week's show is a little bit different. It's a community show or a unsponsored show. And what we did was we um, decided to get uh, Drew, Ethan and myself, Greg Ferrer, around the table, the virtual round table, as we used to call it 10 years ago, and argue about a debate. I mean, debate. Uh, uh, I mean... Uh, converse intelligently around a series of topics. It, what he's trying to say is he has a bunch of crazy ideas and we see if we can find the holes in it, which usually there's a truck I get in and we drive <laughs> through the holes. Only I haven't had a chance to think through this stuff. Drew hasn't had a chance to think through this stuff. So can we find the errors in Mr. Farrow's insane logic? Who knows? Let's find out. We basically out. found the car's unlocked. Dad's car is unlocked in the in the front drive, and you want to take it for a spin, sort of Ferris Bueller's Day Off style. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's do that. So we have uh, four topics selected for today's show. They're kind of general issues that have sort of been bugging, well, me mainly because. Uh, people have been talking about them on Twitter. Vendors have been banging away at these topics. A lot of marketing, a lot of PR, and precious little reality. And there's also sort of um, a lot of stuff happening in the industry where things um, sort of go through an emerging phase, and there's lots of hype and discussion before we actually converge. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today was defining the software-defined branch. Now, we know that... Um, SD-WAN has been around for, well, I guess five years. We could say it's been longer. There have been some SD-WAN vendors who have been around since the turn of the century. That is, in 1999, 2000, there was a couple of companies doing SD-WAN-like activities, but it wasn't really mainstreamed, to my mind, till about 2014. And that was the era when we started talking to companies like Viptela, now Cisco, about their path dynamics. But what we've seen over the last five years is a very rapid iteration past SD-WAN being a better router than a router with its path dynamics and switching over to become a much more general purpose tool. So now it's not only a router, it's also an application inspection engine that can load balance flows across multiple paths. And that application inspection engine now becomes an application firewall because once you've got an application inspection engine, you can block or, or allow packets pretty easily and... The second equation of a firewall, of course, is the software that allows you to add and delete rules pretty easily. So that's a software interface. And of course, all the SD-WAN solutions have a software controller. So pretty quickly, the SD-WAN solution stopped being just routing packets over multiple paths and turned into a security solution. And it wasn't, uh, it didn't take much longer after that for vendors to work out that actually they could really accelerate that security transition to start adding more security functions. If you're going to add an application firewall, why not do something about user logging and monitoring? And why not start adding threat management, threat you know, scanning for viruses, scanning for malware, and uh, moving into detection? And some SD-WAN companies have actually taken this a step further and created an entire security operations center around the idea so that you can actually have a SOC attached to your whole SD-WAN as a managed service. So I guess the question is, Ethan, does that sort of idea for a software-defined branch, does that resonate with you? Are you feeling the magic there? There's a lot of plays here, right? So so you said you really position this as SD-WAN 
um, bolting on security and adding security features and functionality because that makes sense and we can do SD branch now and all that. But we're also seeing the flip side of this where the security companies are adding SD-WAN functionality to their platforms. And in some cases, they're saying like, we've kind of had this functionality all along and we're just dressing it up now to be more you know, feature parity with some of the big SD-WAN features that are out there that people have come to expect. Uh, like Fortinet, for example, comes to mind. Where they, you know, they're yeah. a security company that's added SD WAN. So, does the whole idea make sense? Yeah. So here I am as an operator. I'm sitting at um, headquarters, and I've got all these different branch offices that I got to manage. So, just to put put myself in, the, I was in those shoes for for many years. It got insane the number of boxes I had to manage out at each office. I got my WAN op appliance, and I got my firewall, and I've got, you know, there were, tended to be three, four, five things that were out there, a, a WAN router also, and so on. I don't want all those boxes out there and all these different vendors out there with uh, support contracts that I got to manage yeah, and yeah. all this stuff. I got my remote hands I've got to deal with out there. Hey, yeah, stack this and plug this into this and this into, oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. One box, man, that'd be amazing. So the whole SD-WAN's premise that gives me the security and flexibility that I've had right along all adds up. Plus, of course, I get to do the DIA thing and stop having to backhaul everybody's internet traffic back yeah. to headquarters. I love that architecturally. I don't love maybe having to manage a bunch of different ISPs that I got to have contracts with, but architecturally, yeah, yeah, oh right. yeah, yeah. Because this, you know, does it resonate with me? It, it resonates. <laughs> well, Mr. there's Farrell. a few oh, things yes. there, of course, because once you've got your SD brand sort of software controlled, you know, from some sort of SDN controller, you also have consistent security policy at every branch, which is a not insignificant problem because. 10 years ago, you might have a branch that just had a router and then it had a, an internet connection because somebody dropped a broadband in and you didn't know about it. Whereas once you give people access to internet, it's also possible to start having a consistent security policy across all the branches for the first time because the configuration is now consistent. I think something else about SD branch that I wanted to bring in is we're seeing vendors, particularly those with large portfolios, saying, okay, now we've got this SD-WAN box at the branch. Let's see if we can get our switch into the remote office and our IPs into the remote office, and we'll let you manage and configure it all from one user interface. Yeah, so you're talking about um, in the old days, the router was the router and the Wi-Fi and the LAN was the LAN and the printers were the printer and the PCs were the PCs and they were all separate silos. Right. So what we're actually seeing is a, an, a bundling, not just of the security functions. You're suggesting that software-defined branch then is also a bundling of the branch Wi-Fi and the branch LAN. That's right. And you can extend your access policies from the AP across the switch to the SD-WAN router, through the firewall on the SD-WAN appliance, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, so this this whole idea, Drew, because we've had several vendors that have talked to us about this kind of a thing where they're effectively unifying what they're doing at the branch edge with what they're doing in the core of the buildings you know, on their campus networks. Unified security policy and access, and we can extend this to SD perimeter as well, your remote access VPN kind of stuff. And I do wonder about the efficacy of all that for, from a couple of standpoints. One, different software code bases that have been are kind of like, okay, we're going to glom all these together and make this unified security policy, even though they were really born out of, in, in several cases, depending on which vendor you're looking at, right. different code bases and different backgrounds. So that's one thing. And another thing is... Mm, 
different problems we're solving in different components of the network potentially. So I'm not, it's not, we could argue about this. It's not immediately obvious to me that the security access problems I'm trying to solve in the core or on a campus is necessarily the same as what I'm trying to solve on the WAN. I'm also not sure that it isn't. On the surface of it, my brain goes, yes, I do want unified security policy across all of these different segments of my network. And another part of me, there's like this instinct going, do I, though? Is that the right (laughs) thing? I'm not sure. I think it, well, I've always been of the view that uh, you do want the same security policy for an employee at a branch in Sydney, Australia, as you do for the head office in London, right? You shouldn't. And increasingly what we've seen is that people have been able, um, you know, threat actors have been able to say, well, I can get access to the Sydney branch. And once you're in the branch, whether physically or virtually, you know, you've managed to compromise a laptop in the remote branch, then they can pivot off that into the main um, the main site. Right. You can now get access to the data center. Well, it depends on what what, we're talking about security enforcement from a couple of different Mm -hmm. perspectives, though. Right. Because you're bringing up an example of. You know, a bad actor hooking into a laptop, that laptop being transported around and, you know, it being used as a jumping off point, a gateway to get to different things. Um, I'm thinking more about, like, user access and what they can get at. And and those are similar and related things, but I don't know that they're identical. And may, maybe I'm making a, a difference here where there isn't one. I don't know. It's, it's complicated in the sense that, uh, the the threat surface used to be very different. Sometimes what we would do is put a firewall at the branch WAN, where the branch, where the MPLS services came in, where the dedicated WAN came in, and we try and control what access the users outside of the head office would have. That was one way to do it, and try and filter the inbound traffic off the WAN. It wasn't very useful because the apps in your network were often pretty horribly insecure. Oracle, for example, or you know, some sort of Apache struts or whatever. But it was better than nothing. And then, of course, what happened was in the WAN, you've now got this bigger, big firewall facing out towards your dedicated WAN service that became a single point of failure. Though, you know, you were dependent on the firewall code in that box to actually run as it's supposed to. And when you add and deleted rules that they would actually not block, (laughs) you know, would... Yeah. <laughs> in theory, always a good thing. In practice, HA firewalls are still a single point of failure, right? So, what, Well, it would depend. I mean, architecturally, most of, the, most of the time, you wouldn't stick a firewall on the private MPLS side. You probably would like uh, M&A activity and you pick up a new company. Yeah, they're living on the other side of a firewall and a VPN tunnel that has been carefully filtered because we don't trust those people. My word, until we can get in there and rip <laughs> All, obviously, the company we acquired is terrible at what they did for all yeah. these years, and we need to impose <laughs> our right. policies. And until we've had a chance, we're going to firewall yeah. them off. By God, yeah, we're not going to trust them just because be. we bought them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to trust we them even them less them because we bought them. Maybe <laughs> I just, I mean, I think that, and I think the flip side here is that we're also seeing the rise of. The branch solution. So we've got companies like uh, Meraki, Cisco's Meraki, which is di- sort of into the SMB market in a way. It's a it is a branch, and what they sort of the way that Meraki and also Aruba and also Arrowhive before it went off to extreme networks, we're really saying that a small branch or a small business is the same thing. You don't really need to differentiate them, and I think that sort of highlights the sort of my point that 
a LAN in the branch and a LAN in the head office or wireless in the head office or wireless in a, in a remote office is all the same. There's no difference between these networks and we shouldn't be treating them differently. You asked about SD-WAN, you know, does it resonate conceptually? But I mean, are you trying to uh, you know, pick a fight or trying to find a distinction in some regard uh, based on that architecture of, uh, of SD-branch? Is, is there a, a point of contention? Not really. I wanted to sort of get people... The, the process is that you sort of think about SD-WAN and then as soon as you put an SD-WAN in, you realise that you've only solved half the problem because you've still got switches in the branch or the remote office or you've got a remote campus, whatever language you want to call it, and you've still got oh, printers okay, and I see where you're going with this. So, so there is an argument here of, to be made, potentially, yeah. uh, going back to something I was saying earlier. I, I think the Go argument... Ahead, yeah, the argument that a vendor would make about SD branch when they say, give us your SD-WAN plus the APs plus the switches is operational simplicity. Um, if you talk like to an Aruba or a Fortinet who make their own switches, APs, SD-WANs, they can say it's the same code base, the same OS, one update's going to cover you essentially instead of if I've got, you know, SD-WAN from vendor A, but I, my branch switch is from vendor B and my branch APs are from vendor C, trying to run all that operationally, you know, code updates and software updates and so on, is a little bit harder. If I just buy it from one person, run it all on the same code base, then I've made my life a little easier. And if I can give you one UI where you can go in and do your SD-WAN settings and then your switch settings at the branch and your AP settings, again, I'm, I'm trying to make your life a little easier. That's, I think, the value proposition. We can debate that, uh, how much easier it is and is it worth it to be tied it, it, in. But I would say that's the... Yeah. The value proposition put forward. I think it depends so much on the size of the organization that's deploying it and just how big you're trying to go with this. For example, I Drew, I just did what you just described for my personal setup. I have reason to upgrade a lot of my personal home network stuff, which involves a lab, which involves IoT and so on. I bought a Ubiquity network because of that. I, I went all in on all mm -hmm. of the firewall, uh, a switch, access <laughs> points, and I can manage all yeah. via one thing. Uh, someone that's a good friend of mine gave me a demo because he'd done the same thing. And I was like, yep, I'm in. That's it. That, done. Let's manage it all as a thing. You could probably all do it from you your phone, You can even do right? it from your phone. Yeah, absolutely. You can. There's, uh, there's phone apps that allow you to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Hmm. But as a larger organization where you get into division of duties and you have different, maybe, com I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but maybe different compliance and regulation where you're separating functionality, do you need to also separate tools? So I don't know that it's right for every company, but I do think it's right for a lot of companies and I like that notion of, um, I guess we're not allowed to say one throat to choke anymore. you got to say one hand to shake, one, uh, one back to pat, uh, you know, that, this kind of thing. <laughs> because, right, then you get that, that the benefit of the one company yeah. that, in theory, is making all this stuff work together well and effectively. Aruba comes to mind as a company that's been trying to sell us on you know, this notion where they're really trying to bring the campus switching and the wireless and so on all into one thing. And, you know, Meraki just came up uh, and so on. And extreme as well would also say mm. they can do the same thing. Yeah, and they have a bunch of you know, Aerohive had a very compelling solution there um, around that with the mini Wi-Fi, but they didn't have the SD WAN component. Right, and then of course, they, yeah. we recently saw Aruba make the acquisition or HP make the acquisition of Silverpeak to get the SD WAN part. So sort of validating my point that if you want to be doing branch, you have to have an SD WAN component. You know that capability to be able to do it because com people want i mean 
if you step back more strategically as, as a sort of like a consultant and look at the industry as a whole, one of the things that we see repeated over and over is this idea of bundling and unbundling. And sometimes we call it aggregation and disaggregation. So what we saw in the emergent part of the networking industry was that switching was switching and routing was routing. And over the years, they bundled together and switching and routing became pretty much one thing for most people. And today you can use a 48-port Ethernet switch as a perfectly viable uh, internet-facing gateway router if you so choose to do so, right? Um, doesn't necessarily support full tables or some features, you know, it just becomes a feature and capabilities match, not the fact that the box is inherently incompatible with that purpose. Uh, and what we've seen with SD Branch is we've had this disaggregation where the router was a router, the firewall was a firewall, the proxy was a proxy, the Wi-Fi was a Wi-Fi, the campus switch was a campus right. switch. And now what we're seeing is all of those You know what, though, Greg, the, the, the one thing we haven't talked about that was another defining aspect of, of that, that earlier paradigm where the switch was the switch and the firewall was the firewall, etc. Best of breed. That was the reason so often that we did that. Oh, I've invested in Oh, some years ago, I remember that we ended up doing an IPS investigation, decided to buy Tipping Point back when that was a thing. And okay, so now everybody's got to go get your Tipping Point box because yeah. that was the best of breed for IPS was Tipping Point. Now, so so I, I would argue, Greg, that if you go to the all-in-one, that's valid. There's certainly plenty of processing power mm. in a single box to do all of that for, the, for most use cases. And so we, what we do away with best of breed, it ends up being arguably a, a trade-off, right? We're settling for ease and operations on the assumption that all the functions we need this one box to do, that it does it good enough. And good enough is good enough. Yeah. Well, okay, so my riposte to that, shall we say, is to say... Best of breed makes sense in an emerging market, in a new technology. So when firewalls first came onto the market, they're an individual technology. We saw this with software-defined data centers. We saw lots of startups coming out and focusing on this as an inclusive product. And now um, software-defined data center of any form is like an armpit. Everybody's got one <laughs> or two, right? And, you know, you've probably got two because one's in a public cloud, which is a software-defined data center, and you've got another one in your private data center, and the two are uh, incompatible, more or less, at some level. And I think that best of breed makes sense when these markets are emerging and they're maturing, but at some point... There's not a lot of difference between the technologies once they've reached this mature right. phase. So if you're thinking about something like a Palo Alto or a Fortinet or a, a Cisco um, firewall in the modern era, you know, an FTD, is there actually any difference between them? We could talk about things like code stability and certain types of features or, you know, this type of inspection and that type of inspection. But pretty much that's like arguing over the difference between 14-inch wheels and 13-inch wheels right. between two different cars in a car yacht, you know, or whether your Hyundai car is better than a, you know, than a Renault. Sort of I thing. think the other thing that, that the argument used to be about best of breed is that it gave you a little bit more competitive leverage uh, when it came time to re-up your licenses and renegotiate. If you could say, we're thinking of bringing in vendor X, uh, maybe you could get a better discount. Uh, when you go all in on one vendor, they kind of got you. And so when you, one of the reasons for best of breed is to say, I'm not putting all my eggs in one vendor's basket and I've got more 
negotiating leverage. Oh, that's when they need it. But I, I agree that we're, we're, we're reaching feature parity on a lot of what used to be emerging technologies. And so the next gen firewall from vendor A probably isn't going to be significantly different from the next gen firewall of vendor B. These it days. is interesting, Drew, that you put it that yeah. way with, um, you know, yes, I could replace a function. Because if we look at SD branch as uh, a whole bunch of functions that have been collapsed into a single function, uh, effectively, at least a single box, you could say, eh, next refresh cycle, maybe I don't want to use a, this SD branch solution from vendor X. I'm going to go to vendor Y this time. And you're instead of replacing mm-hmm. one box that did the firewalling, now you're replacing one box that did all the things. Is it a harder swap <laughs> out to do? Yeah, maybe, depending on how deep the deeply you've deployed that technology, how many of the features that you're using and relying upon as a business, but you could still you could still make that replacement argument uh, as a refresh cycle comes up. Um, I don't think it's as easy because SD-WAN is not standardized and there's no compatibility between platforms. And especially if you, again, you're digging more deeply into those additional features and functions, it is going to be somewhat harder to displace the vendor. But I don't know that they've got you forever if you are have truly had a bad experience mm. and you had to have three people on your staff do the CCIE licensing program and whatever it is that's driven you insane. Oh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> There's only so much abuse a customer will take. It's often a lot, but there is a limit. <laughs> Obviously, it's a lot because we see that every day. I, I think the f- <laughs> we hear about it, we complain about it all the time. I, I think the I think at one level, the idea that a multi-vendor strategy is a smart purchasing strategy is is on the face of it, an easy decision to make. So if I have multiple vendors, I can beat them over the head and get the best possible pricing. But the other side of that argument is it's also not a very good strategy to just say, I need multi-vendor to get um, the best pricing right. I can get. There are other ways to get good pricing and go single vendor. So we've seen over the years that if you commit to a single vendor, they will give you additional mm-hmm. discounts above and beyond and give some sort of, it's usually not a contractual commitment, but you know, Cisco discounts for large customers who can make it work. They can approach Cisco and say, well, if we go all in with you, will you give us deeper discounts? And they will often say yes. And there are, you know, there are advantages to that because then everybody in the company knows that if you just get out the Cisco price list, you can buy anything that's on it. Mm-hmm. And that's often the negative here, right? Because people get lazy and stop doing comparative evaluations, stop considering what's best for the company and just buy what's easiest for purchasing. Um, So there is multiple angles to this. But I think, you know, to say the only reason to have best of breed is to have a multi-vendor strategy is a little transparent because it's a pretty, um, it's not a sound strategy for price management or contract. Sure, sure. Yeah. But it's often the only one we have as IT professionals. And and frankly, (laughs) going back to your original case about best of breed and that new technologies tend to be where you go for best of breed, we're going to see it's probably impossible to have a single vendor shop because there's going to be new innovations and new technologies and new requirements. And some clever startup is going to come along and release something and everybody's going to go, oh, I need that. And then we're right back to having a multi-vendor environment. And again, going back to what you were saying right at the beginning of this, Craig, SD-WAN has advanced a lot in the last five years. And finally, in 2020, we're seeing all of these mm. uh, acquisitions yeah. and consolidations in the market, something that we thought should have happened maybe two years ago, but it's finally taking hold now, which implies, 
I see the advantage of this, and I'm investing in SD-WAN, that a lot of companies are saying that, and the, the bigger players out there going, okay, yeah, we got to, mm. the, these guys really nailed it with their code base, and they got, a, you know, some customers, let's grab them up, bring them into the portfolio, repackage, mm-hmm. and sell. Um, Palo Alto, grab Cloudgenics, for example. Yeah, I think, there's a, I think there's a twist here, though. There's a twist to these acquisitions. They're not buying competitors to set them up as a business unit inside the organization. So when Cisco acquired Viptela in 2018, I want to say, maybe 2017, um, they then took the Viptela, set up a business unit inside of Cisco called Cisco Viptela, and then proceeded to sell that product. What we're seeing with the SD-WAN acquisition is we're seeing SD-WAN being added to existing software, software-defined branch technologies. So in the case of Aruba, they said, we are going to develop our own SD-WAN strategy, and now they've acquired Silverpeak, and that means that Aruba can continue to bring its clear pass authentication structure, it's got its wireless uh, structure, it's got its uh, switching infrastructure, which it's built out of the old pro curve around Aruba OS. Um, and it's not so. What they're not doing here is building SD WAN companies, just a divi- you know a new division just to sell SD WAN. No, they're building exactly. it into the bundle yeah, that, to round that, out that, the solution. Not yeah, which is not uh, what I would have. Well, I think that's driven by the SD branch context that we've been having in this conversation, though, right? It's if you want to be able to sell that all in one flavor, and SD WAN mm. is a big missing piece. Um, it's advanced far enough, SD-WAN as a technology, that to build that platform out from scratch, you're going to be playing catch-up for a long time. Acquisition's faster way to get into that market, do the consolidation to bring it in, to your product consolidation to bring it in. I mean, that, that seems to be the Palo play with CloudGenix. They're going to bring CloudGenix in, and presumably we're going to see Palo mm. bundling SD-WAN capability with application identification, et cetera, et cetera, right into the Palo platform. Well, why would Palo need to do that? They're the 800-pound grill in the security and the firewalling market. I'm assuming they're being displaced mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. shops by maybe Fortinet, for example. I'm, I, I don't know who the bake-offs are, but they come to mind yeah. as someone who's made mm-hmm. it really planted that flag around SD-WAN capability in what was originally a security-only platform. Uh, definitely for Palo and for Fortinet, because I've done a lot of researching into those ideas, they see though seeing having the SD-WAN as a key way of selling their threat detection and threat management and cloud scanning and CASB yeah. engines. So they've got these cloud scan cloud engines where users send their traffic and they scan it for viruses and malware and user logging and user visibility and all that type of um, you know, security functions. And they're realizing that if you don't have an SD-WAN, then customers can't access your CASB. There's a substantial market for it. It's not the only way. Like a lot of enterprises will, you know, put tools on their laptops to force their traffic into, you know, Zscaler as well as another um, vendor in this space. But uh, Palo Alto has committed to its shareholders, particularly that it's going to be able to grow its Prisma business by astonishing amounts. And there's actually no basis for that to happen because if you're just trying to churn out the number of firewalls they have in the market, the amount of numbers they're promising are predicated on the fact that there has to be some other growth coming into that. So I don't see them buying SD-WAN. No, it's, this isn't merely about customer retention being able to be competitive yeah. on an appliance basis, you're saying there's other lines of business that are going to be revenue growth streams that when they bring that technology in, when they bring SD-WAN technology in, now they can begin to sell that and uh, and have some platform, some means to get that growth that they're promising people. 
I think also with somebody like a Palo Alto, they were very focused on the firewall, of course, and the firewall business, which has been very robust for them, and building out Prisma, the the CASB, the cloud-based security service. And they sort of got taken by surprise by SD-WAN and the potential for market growth and maybe started to see some of their branch firewalls get displaced by, like we've heard Silver Peak customers doing it and so on, Fortinet, and saying, okay, we can try to build our own SD-WAN solution ourselves on top of our existing platform, or we got to get in this market quickly. Let's just buy somebody and do it. I kind of feel like that's what they did. I'm sure they have the internal chops mm. to build out SD-WAN themselves, but they thought we got to get into this market now. Yeah. So they just, Oh, bought I agree. Instead. It's not about the capability of building it given enough time. It's, it's time. That's the problem. And, and what's the quickest route to market and to begin cashing in. And there's one other angle here, of course, and that is that Cisco's um, bringing Viptela, the Viptela SD-WAN product to market hasn't been as slick as it has been in the past. They have been very slow, um, they had IWAN, they acquired Viptela. There was some internal, you know, uh, ructions between the two before IWAN was put to bed and Viptela became dominant. And then they rushed out the announcement that um, its SD-WAN strategy would be built into SD-WAN into iOS routers and then took four years for that code to finally ship in a stable, mm-hmm. purchasable form. People that we've spoke to have said there were early Viptela users on iOS routers, uh, you know, iOS XR routers were saying it was pretty horrible experience. And in 2020, you know, in the second half of 2020, it might be time to think about moving the SD-WAN into Cisco's, you know, ISR router family. But that's left a huge market for five years where Cisco really hasn't been fully present. And that gap is something that these other companies can slide into. Does that make sense? I think that's a key strategic thing that we need to note here. Yeah, I agree. Um, Cisco tried to build its own SD-WAN solution out of the parts and pieces it had in the organization and didn't really pull it off. Uh, And that gave uh, some room for other vendors like uh, CloudGenix and so on to pop up and and take market share. But also left room for firewall companies to add SD-WAN and then to bundle that and left room for companies who operate SOCs to enter the SD-WAN market and replace edge routing and use the internet as well. And there was a key buying. And the other strategic consideration is that replacing dedicated MPLS circuits with public WAN or internet is such a cost saving that it drove the market at very high velocity. Now, even though SD-WAN adoption today is relatively limited, you know, we're talking thousands of customers, not tens of thousands of customers across all the vendors. The momentum is really there and the savings is just, it's just taking time. You just said to me, if you don't think the market penetration is that high, I haven't looked at the latest consumption numbers. I don't know uh, what the spend is, but you did just tell me there's still hope for Riverbed, which is because we haven't mentioned them yet, but uh, they've been you know, talking about late to market. You know, Riverbed consolidating yeah. their SD-WAN strategy means that if the market penetration for SD-WAN isn't that high, they've still got they've still got room. They've still got uh, customers they can retain, and now they got that Versa partnership. So, yeah, well, my you could make that argument, I think, because. Uh, Cisco's penetration in the SD-WAN, its mindshare in the SD-WAN. Obviously, Cisco as a company has great mindshare with organizations, but its actual deployments are relatively limited. They're measured, you know, Cisco's got a few thousand deployments. They'd like to say that's a lot, but that is not the out of the total network count in the world. And if, and I guess my, a better piece of evidence would be to say that if Cisco had executed flawlessly on this, none of these other SD-WAN companies would exist. And yet they do. Silverpeak, you know, was acquired for nine hundred and fifty million. Cloudgenix was bought by HP, uh, by uh, 
Palo Alto, Fortinet completely pivoted their business and started to emphasize their SD-WAN functionality. Those are not things those companies would have done if there was not a market for them to be there. I don't know that Fortinet completely pivoted, but I I understand the point you make. Certainly, they've done a lot of marketing with us in some cases about the (laughs) SD-WAN capability that's in there going, ah, we've been doing heavy routing since, you know, way back in the day. And yeah, we can do SD-WAN. Look, here's all the things that we can do. Uh, It's telling that story. Yeah. Can we load balance across IPsec tunnels? Sure. Betcha. Can we we identify applications? We got that. Let's... Next topic, Greg. Next topic. I want. I want a new thing. So, uh, I. Next topic. Do you think? Yeah. Anyway, so I think what we've done is defined SD branch there. We've also argued why the market has emerged, the way it has, and probably the one thing that we haven't particularly emphasised is the use of controllers and software defined. So a key part of SD WAN is the use of visibility and analytics and configuration management tools, which actually changes the way we work with things. So let's move on. Uh, the next topic I wanted to see um, was to raise with you is just recently we saw uh, Netflix come out with an announcement of a video streaming format called AVIF, A-V-I-F. Um, and at the same time, the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, which is the progenitor of the MP3, has released a new H.266 codec that promises to cut streaming uh, 4K in half because it halves the bandwidth. Now, these codecs are not something we normally pay much attention to, and but what I was surprised about it was it's been a long time since I've seen a substantial move in the internet to cut bandwidth consumption. Although we talk about performance improvement, nobody actually ever talk about what I class as bandwidth avoidance. Generally, it's just been like streaming. Sure, just stream it <laughs> at the highest possible. Waste that bandwidth, blow it away. And so, you know, a quick quick note before we go on um, that uh, what Netflix came out was was an image compression uh, new standard. It's not for streaming; it's for image compression. Those little pictures of the movies mm. that are on their site that ah, make yeah, them sorry. yeah smaller and more efficient. Without losing yeah, quality. Yeah, that's deep. My apologies. I'm deviating a little bit, but yes. My thought with compression was that you couldn't do much more with compression, and so that streaming at the at, at 4K particularly was going to become you know, intensely stressful for for bandwidth. Um, when you look at what's happening with 1080p, we've kind of got that so- sorted, right? But Netflix is a, an incredible consumer of internet bandwidth. Even as highly distributed as um, as Netflix point of presence are, they put the boxes pretty close to you wherever you are, close to the eyeball networks. You're still seeing a massive amount of saturation. Now you add 4K to that. And I know I did some measurements of my own with... Um, uh, Wireshark internally, just to get a sense of how much band was getting shoved through the pipe here. And it was something like, you know, a good 1080p high dev stream was something in the three to seven megabits per second range, just depending. And 4K was mm. roughly uh, three to four times that, you know, up into the low to mid 20 megabit per mm. second range. And my brain is going, well, compression is what it is. We've kind of got that cold. But gosh, that's going to suck if 4K goes everywhere. And then you're talking about 8K and even 12K standards for filming. It's like, okay, how in the world is the internet going to be able to tolerate that? And I was thinking the answer is it isn't. And maybe no one cares because, oh my gosh, 1080p is amazing. 4K is beyond amazing. We're never going to need anything higher than that. So we'll probably be fine. But apparently, Greg, from what the story that you found, bandwidth avoidance is a, a thing, and people mm. are thinking about this. There's got to be a, a reduction in quality, though, no? 
Uh, apparently not. Apparently they can do the math in such a way that the codex are as good, if not better than. And if you have a look at the blog post, uh, links are in the show notes, by the way. So if you want to go and do the research and have a look at the sources, the links for most for this section are certainly in the show notes. Um, you can actually see that for what Netflix is talking about for its image format is it's probably better in terms of visually than what you're seeing today in terms of its ability to compress and then yet retain the relevant information. I mean, we can also see that with Apple's HEIC image format, where they're now storing it at one quarter the size of a PNG or a JPEG and at no loss of you know visual representation. So... Mm. Yeah, I think bandwidth avoidance makes sense to me, particularly for somebody like Netflix who will live and die based on performance. You know, if a, a video lags or is choppy, the viewer isn't going to be like, oh, this is Comcast's fault or the CDN's fault. Damn that Akamai. It's going <laughs> right. to be like, Netflix sucks, right? And they're going to yeah, go somewhere yeah. else. So whatever they can do, they're going to do. That's right. It was just heartening to see people care about the bandwidth. Because in the old days, you know, there's all these <laughs> optimizations in protocols like OSPF to save bandwidth, you know, like an EIGRP, one of the EIGRP's big things was that it used very little actual bandwidth. It had, you know, pacing controls and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And yet in the current era, it's like, ah, just upgrade it, which is why part of the reason why I always say, don't worry about quos, because the faster you get, the less you need to worry about quos, because it just doesn't make sense. The chances of you congesting on most networks, on a typical enterprise network, is pretty limited, unless you're living in like the 1990s, where bandwidth is a rare, precious resource <laughs> that has to be, you know. Well, th th this is also Netflix, I think, giving back to the internet community, right? Uh, you, could, you could look at it that way. Since they're such a massive consumer of, uh, of the internet, and, and some would argue for free, you know, some people are saying these over-the-top services, we don't make any money on that. The service providers would argue that and be resentful to Netflix for, uh, for for such a thing. Well, this is Netflix giving, in a technical way, you know, technology that gives back some of that bandwidth, or at least begins to reduce the exponential consumption of bandwidth over time. 4K potentially being you know, bandwidth apocalypse for some of these service providers. As much as we're seeing bandwidth capabilities grow, uh, we also know the cost for a 100-gig port, et cetera, is far from – it's astonishingly expensive, let's face it. It still is and will be. Um, so how is a service provider going to re-architect and re-architect and re-architect backbones with more and more and more hardware – they couldn't, aren't going to be able to keep up with that cost, you know, in theory, unless some things change here. So this is maybe, you know, Netflix not just being nice, but, but being economically, doing something that's economically necessary in the long term. I think, I think there's a couple of angles. One is, yes, Netflix wants to improve the user experience. So having a faster loading, um, you know, image and, of course, the consistent move to better streaming, H.266. The flip side here is that when you release a codec like this, you actually have to have people use it. So you have to open source it or Firefox and Chrome and, you know, and Safari will follow along in due course. If you don't open source it, these vendors aren't going to put it in unless there's a reason for them. They'll put in the H.266 because that's the standard and there are licensing fees to be paid when they put that in the browsers. Firefox always gets a dispensation. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, the open sourcing thing is literally no one's going to do it. And the only people who are going to produce new codecs are people who've got the appropriate financial or business motivation to do it. But in terms of the backbone and the Internet, um, I'm less worried about that. Uh, certainly there are countries in the world where the bandwidth is a problem, but we've also got new tools coming along. We've got 
optical performance in the DWDM shifting to from 100 gig long haul to 400 gig to 800 gig, and they're already out there ten, testing multi-terabit class hmm. optical backbones. We've got uh, new and better standards around 100 gig and 400 gig Ethernet in the metro, uh, low-cost technologies. We've got the public cloud providers driving down the cost of those technologies. So instead of you know, the vendors milking uh, the telcos for every single penny for, for extra bandwidth, you know, like trying to tax them, the public uh, cloud companies are out there saying, we just need more bandwidth. So we're going to do things like Facebook's open compute is changing the way that people look at optical equipment and look at these devices and having open optical and having open RAN and having the telecom infrastructure project sort of says, look, there are lots of ways to make telco networks really cheap. You don't have to be uh, paying over the odds for these technologies unless you choose to. Um, so I'm much more convinced that there are things happening in the industry that will lower the cost of bandwidth precipitously. And it's a systemic. It comes all the way back from the innovations around optical manufacturing and the standards for optical performance to the ASICs that go inside the switches. Like we've seen optical solutions using the Broadcom ASICs that we use in Ethernet switches. That's a really low cost way. Um, we're seeing Juniper and Arista put optical interfaces inside their chassis-based switches and inside their fixed format routers. So you can run directly into the DWDM without having to have a DWDM edge. Those, all those things are really um, have serious ramifications for the way that we get more bandwidth into our networks at effectively no cost. Hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that seems to well, have... Uh, I, that just, that I, just I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't disagree with that. I, we've known for a very long time that uh, switches and routers and so on have huge margins that are there. So, you know, yeah, has there been room to move on the price? Yeah. You betcha. So, um, okay, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Democratizing bandwidth, making bandwidth no longer the issue is uh, is an interesting take on it, but I, I still think uh, that bandwidth avoidance matters, it's, and it's going to continue to matter because uh, maybe it isn't the core, as you were saying, Greg. If we go with your line of logic, then that isn't the problem. What does become the problem is the quality of the last mm. mile networks, the eyeball no, networks, I... trying to distribute increasingly higher streams at sufficient quality. Yeah to the consumers you just want 8k right. on your mm -hmm. phone that's all we're saying here you just you want to watch your youtube in 8k <laughs> when the time comes and that, that's it <laughs> and now you sound like a telecom consultant banging on about 5g that's not what you want right that is just that is just not what you want i was just uh, waiting for ethan to say the edge and then he had to put a quarter in the jar <laughs> No, it's just interesting. I mean, for every argument you have that the bandwidth's going to run out, yes, there's an argument to say bandwidth is increasing. Um, Google, for example, this week is deploying a transatlantic cable with 32 pair with 32 cores or 16 pairs. That's uh, something like four to eight times more than the cables they were deploying in the year 2000. Uh, during the peak of the dot-com boom. And those same fibres, and because they're using uh, RAM and doped amplifiers and all this sort of stuff, can clock at unbelievably fast speeds, way faster than the old fibre optics that was deployed. So for every time you look at, say, the internet's running out of bandwidth, you look and there's a corresponding innovation and cost advantage. So as the bandwidth increases, the cost does not. In fact, the cost tends to decrease. And that's the challenge that telcos have got at the moment. Is how, It's not so much how do they 
charge more? It's how do they sustain pricing as the cost of implementing a network gets cheaper and cheaper? Speaking of changing the network and making it cheaper, I saw a tweet this week uh, from Fujita, who is a uh, sort of a well-known person in the in the coding community, and he announced that he had ported the Quick protocol into his Rusty BGP. So he's got a full-on BGP implementation in Rust, and he decided to add the Quick protocol directly to it. So the Quick protocol, of course, is HTTPS over UDP, uh, and he sort of dropped this link out there. Now, I actually think this is a great idea because, really, why why not? Why not communicate between BGP peers using a robust, well-known protocol like Quick that is fast, slick, um, and definitely well, replacement Quick, Quick for isn't TCP. exactly HTTP over UDP. I mean, HTTP is one of the things you can do with Quick, for, and that's obviously been the, the main use case that we've seen so far. But, but Quick is a transport layer can be used for all kinds of applications. And here we go. Here's BGP. Let's put that over Quick. Uh, I yeah. don't see why not. I also don't know why necessarily. Are you just arguing for it for security reasons, Greg? Yes. No, I, I think there's a few things. One of the things that um, talking to people is they say that synchronizing BGP peers and exchanging full internet routing tables is starting to take a substantial amount of time. Single stream kind of a bottleneck, routes. you mean? By the time you do IPv4. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you've also got TCP, so you've got fairly slow handshakes. Um, so let me go through my reasons uh -huh. for. First of all, performance. Quick is a multi-stream protocol, allowing for flow control and multi-threaded data flows. So once you establish a quick session, you can use flow control algorithms. You can modify the flow control algorithms as time goes by. So you could actually come up with a custom flow control algorithm that's just optimized for the BGP database exchange, right? There's nothing stopping you, except nobody would. But, you know, there's a number of choices for data exchange. Yeah, it, it, it's multi-streams that looks like a single stream. It's all embedded internally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. multi-threaded data for, as they say. Um, so having a, a performance improvement around BGP setup, and then think about what happens when a BGP neighbor wakes up and wants to, uh, you know, notify the neighbor of an adding a route or rescinding a route. If you could speed that up, then in theory, your BGP should converge faster. Or in the case of the internet, it might actually converge. Oh, no. right. Um, you could certainly <laughs> the internet will never this. converge. But 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 yes, I, I get your point. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the, the point here is that BGP over Quick could just be a switch on the command line because they're all most BGP peers are configured manually, neighbor to neighbor. And you could even set up an exchange process where you detect if they're quick, and if not, you wind back to the TCP. In theory, not magically hard. Um, Quick can be implemented in any code, so there's platform independence. It really doesn't matter. Um, you're still using UDP, so you're not reinventing the entire wheel. I would argue that code quality should improve. Instead of depending on the TCP algorithm, and this is probably the one I like most, most BGP implementations depend on the TCP algorithm that's underneath. And I would suggest that most vendors don't test their BGP software on the platform that it ships on. So they just say like, oh, there's a TCP, should be good, and put it in the box and send it out. And then all of a sudden we find that BGP has got problems. Whereas your quick code can actually be bedded into the BGP code and tested on its own. And arguably that should give us better code quality and better testing coverage over time. And certainly, it should be part of the CI/CD testing harness to be actually able to. You just cut up on a unicorn and rode around. Um, geez, 
I don't know, man. Come on. I did. Yes. It's <laughs> it's a shiny one. This sparkly. I, I, I don't know. I I, I I think I understand the point that you're making, but I don't know that code quality is necessarily going to improve hmm. if we take a stack that should be reasonably static, quick is still being developed, blah, blah. But, um, you know, don't we just want a standard library for that rather than a bunch of people doing their own implementation within BGP? (laughs) Why would that improve code quality? You're just spreading the opportunity to screw it up a bunch, a whole bunch of different developers. Come on. Yeah, there's new versus mature, I think, is uh, doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other. Yeah. And then, of course, my last one is that BGP neighbor sessions are unencrypted. Now, normally, these routers are directly adjacent and the need for encryption is zero and indeed to the point where MD5 encryption on MBGP neighbours is now deprecated as not best practice. But I can see that we said the same thing about DNS queries. So we used to say that DNS queries in the clear was perfectly fine and nobody worried about it. And if I could get in between your BGP neighbour sessions, then theoretically I can do lots of fun things. So why not encrypt it? It's not like HTTPS encryption is hard. Yeah, I don't have any argument well with that. Yeah. I, I, I didn't is... know that MD5 had yeah. got, fallen away from being best practice. I didn't know that. I'd like to read that BCP from the IETF and see what the logic is behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you stand mm-hmm. up a quick session you know, and BGP over that, that implies to me the other side is uh, trusted. There should be some kind of an authentication there, a uh, certificate or some such. And that feels like it would be a building block in providing a more robust and secure routing infrastructure where maybe we've got less in the way of uh, route leakage and so on. It's far from the whole solution, right? But it, it again, it feels like it could be a brick yeah. in, uh, in, in the wall that we're trying to build there for... Um, and <laughs> We know we've got internet routing security challenges because every time there's a major route leak of some kind, it affects something. Cloudflare being, being the most recent Cloudflare DNS tied yes. back to a BGP problem. But none of that, and, and none of that's going to change. And none, of, and you know, we don't solve that. That that you know, somebody injecting it in. As long as it comes from a router which is added, and RPKI is a, a solving a lot of this. So if you start to solve routing problems with RPKI and manners, and you know everybody getting signing the fact that they're initiating the routes. If I was an attacker on the internet, the next thing I'm going to do is get into the BGP peering sessions and start playing with it, right? A, a, a bit tougher to inject yourself there, but yes, I, yeah. I get the point that you're making. Sure. Yeah, not very, not very remote. But if I'm a I'm attacker, then if I can no longer just add a router to the network and start initiating routes for subnets I don't own, then I've got to start thinking of other ways I can disrupt the BGP. And the natural one is to you know use the fact that the protocol is unencrypted in some way, take over a router, work out a vulnerability, get a zero day pivot, and then start injecting routes that you want in there. So I think that's that's the argument for the arguments against. BGP isn't broken. Don't fix it. Okay. We've been saying that for 20 years. Fine. Uh, It's also true that BGP peering implies trust between two parties. So you don't need encryption uh, to validate the source. We've got RPKI for that. And generally, because you're directly connected, it there is a trust, and there's often not much chance yeah, for... Yeah, there's two parties that are, you have to manually stand up that BGP session, which means that two people yeah. that have a context of some kind of a business relationship are standing up that BGP session. It's not like 
you can just go and stand it up. That's right. And, you know, potentially adding HTTPS and there's some public private key encryption there could be problematic. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't reason what all we want to do is encryption. We don't actually want to identify, right? So you don't have to activate the public private key infrastructure where you go and register every router with Let's Encrypt for a public private key. You can just have a self-signed connection and say it's just for the encryption, not for identifying the, the sender and the receiver, right? And the other one, of course, is a TCP protocol. The PGP protocol over TCP is just fine. And that every TCP implementation in the world is awesome uh, and never, ever breaks. Just uh, because this... So how many implementations of TCP <laughs> are there? Meaning that depending on use case, TCP is very broken because we invented a whole new algorithm for this TCP uh, to be able to work best in this situation. So, uh, okay, if that's an argument yes. against, fine, but come on. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that TCP flow control, there's definitely an argument there for quick having flow control algorithms that might be superior for speeding up the BGP data transfer potentially. But if whether you regard it uh, as good or not, it's an interesting thought exercise perhaps to um, sit down. If you're studying BGP and you're thinking to yourself, why is it using TCP? Think about why is it not quick? That was what I was making. Well, we can expand the, the conversation, design, Greg, right? and go, okay, BGP over quick. Well, everything over quick. What what else can be put over quick? And there has been some discussion about that, that quick may be a transport layer successor to TCP in the long run. That is plausible. Certainly headed in that direction. Um, I think, you know, we're seeing, as we see new protocols develop, like the replacement for SNMP is, SNMP is designed to use its own protocol for efficiency, bandwidth avoidance, uh, back in the day. And then kept, you know, created a packet format and highly customized for SNMP to minimize it. But now when we do gRPC or streaming telemetry or, you know, any form of APIs, we just do it over uh, HTTPS or TLS 1.3 more correctly. And over time, that will all switch to quick just for the stability and the reliability of it. And it can be the same library everywhere. It could happen. It could happen, of course. We also see that a lot of things that have been around a long time continue to be around because they've been around for a long time. <laughs> There's a lot of inertia we have with networking technology. <laughs> they just don't seem to go away because change is hard. That's true, and that's a that's a substantial issue here. I mean, a lot of people are struggling with BGP as is. Um, a lot of organizations aren't. You know, if you've got good engineers with solid training and skills, um, this wouldn't you know, and a lot of people just say, why would you change anything? And I go like, why wouldn't you change anything? I'm really tired of people saying no, because we don't want change. We need to think carefully about change where it's needed and when it can add value. And there is a, I think there is a good argument to be made that adding quick to BGP is a discussion worth having. And maybe somebody in the ITF, maybe even you, could participate in the ITF and make this happen. Unfortunately, I can't because I'm just not built for that sort of thing, but somebody <laughs> might. Well, we had a couple of more topics on the uh, on the list here, but I think we're going to put them in the, uh, in the uh, BGP TCP protocol and eventually, consistently, they will emerge somewhere on the Packet Pushes <laughs> network. I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion, uh, Mr. Banks. Any, any closing thoughts on our eclectic variety discussion around the virtual <laughs> roundtable this week? 
No, but I'll do some housekeeping for you. Uh, one thing, Packet Pushers has a Slack channel where you can have questions, uh, discussions about BGP over quick, where, Greg, I know you got right into it with a lot of folks. And if you want to join that Slack group and the ever-growing community of people, it's over 1,200 people in there now, packetpushers.net slash Slack. And uh, we got a newsletter, too, the Human Infrastructure Magazine. We send that out once a week, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Drew, what about you? Have you got something to plug this week? Uh, no, I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. I guess my final thought is, um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it has never stopped anybody from trying to fix it. So let's see what happens. <laughs> yes. And just because it's a standard doesn't mean that anybody uses it. Well, on that note, thank you so much for listening. This has been a packet pushes podcast on the heavy networking channel, where we just look back at the state of the industry and pick up some topics and throw them around like a packet in a routing loop to see where they're going to take us you can find us on twitter at, at packet pushes on the internet at packetpushes.net. Uh, we also have a range of other activities going on there you can hear our writing and find out about our other five channels in our podcast network as always um, don't hesitate to tell your friends about us. It. it would be very helpful if you did tell people that we exist and that you listen it helps us find an audience and continue to stay in business don't forget to like us on your favorite podcatcher because that does also help. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.